Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. Hello, fellow geeks. You may have noticed a significant silence on my part, both in the podcast as well as on my website. My last podcast was released on April 22nd, and my review of the first episode of Genius is the last thing I've written, and that was back on April 25th. I have to extend my apologies for just dropping off the face of the earth like that. To be brief, 2017 has not been kind to me. I've been going through some personal issues this year, and it may get a longer post on my website. But for now, the good news is that while I'm not at 100% back where I was, I do feel on the mend, so to speak. And so I'm ready to get back into doing this podcast. Once again, apologies for the delay. Back in late April, I attended the 2017 LA Times Festival of Books. The largest book festival in the United States, this free annual event celebrates the written word. With panels on a variety of topics, readings and interviews with authors, and even music performances, there's always something for everyone. This was my third year attending, and I still have some notes from the panels I may end up writing up. While I was there, I interviewed many of the people in the various vendor booths throughout the festival. During these interviews, I asked them for where to go for more information on what they're talking about. All of that information is going to be in the article that accompanies this podcast on my website. You can also see photos and videos I took at the festival. Now, without further ado, let's visit this year's LA Times Festival of Books. My name is Neil Tashada. I'm a volunteer for the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library in Indianapolis, Indiana. And tell me a little bit about the museum and library. So the museum and library was founded by Julia Whitehead, a passionate Vonnegut fan and a veteran who uh, really saw a need for a Kurt Vonnegut museum and library of some sort. And about 10 years ago, she founded it herself and uh, has turned it into one of the most important attractions in Indianapolis, probably the most visited attraction in Indianapolis that's not sports related. <laughs> and um, it's really just a, a, a center for all things Vonnegut related. There are archival materials, uh, materials about his book, his life, items from his family. Uh, there's one fantastic letter that Kurt's father sent to Kurt when he was in World War II. He was captured, of course, and for those people who know about Kurt Vonnegut, he was uh, a prisoner of war in Dresden. When he finally got the letter, he chose not to open it. And it was later given to his son, Mark Vonnegut, who donated it to the museum on the condition that it is not opened. So there's a letter from Kurt's father sent to him during World War II that has never been opened in the museum. So in addition to that, there's all kinds of other fantastic things. And some of the activities that the museum sponsors include scholarships at Short Ridge High School, which is Kurt Vonnegut's alma mater in Indianapolis. Um, they sponsor an essay writing contest and scholarship for what's in the letter. And Indianapolis has declared 2017 the year of Vonnegut in Indianapolis. So there's a lot of programming around this. We're undergoing a massive capital campaign to move into a new building, purchase a new building so that we can expand and showcase more of Kurt's great work. Some of the other outreach work that we do uh, include workshops for teachers who are teaching Kurt's, yes, Kurt's work, like Slaughterhouse-Five, in their curriculum. Uh, we participate heavily in Banned Books Week, which usually happens at the end of the year. Um, and I think one of the other th great things is veterans groups 
are sponsored or uh, workshops for veterans are sponsored by the Kurt Vonnegut Museum Library to help them deal with post-traumatic stress uh, and using writing as a way of creating personal narratives and expressing some of that anxiety, depression, whatever it may be, but guiding them through that and using what I think Kurt would really appreciate it, which was um, writing as a tool to express yourself and become more comfortable with yourself. We do the same thing with high school seniors, actually, and, and middle school students, where we can encourage them to see themselves as beautiful people and, and, and express themselves through a personal narrative that we help sponsor uh, workshops for. So um, you said this is the year of the Vonnegut. Is it, is it some sort of anniversary, or is it just the, the political situation? What caused them to do that for this year? Yes, great question. So uh, Indianapolis declared 2017 the year of Vonnegut. It's been 10 years since his passing. Uh, he passed on April 11th, 27, 2007. So this is uh, just over 10 years now that uh, Kurt passed. So I think Kurt's work and Kurt's life is mu very much in the public consciousness right now in that 10-year anniversary. And the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, I think, has done a lot to raise that awareness. And we're here in Los Angeles at the LA Festival of Books to make all these fantastic Kurt Vonnegut fans here in Los Angeles aware of the museum and library in Indianapolis provide some outreach to them to let them know that they can get involved even if they're not in Indianapolis. There's still a lot to do with regards to getting more people to read Kurt's work. Um, there's so many fans, but there's a new generation of fans re ready to start reading Slaughterhouse-Five and Cat's Cradle and Breakfast of Champions and Slapstick and Bluebeard and so many other great works. And uh, we're here just to share that message and continue Kurt's legacy. And like I said, uh, for better or for worse, the current political situation has definitely reflected um, what he has uh, had fought about. Fought. Have you seen, you know, an increase, decrease? How has the current political situation uh, changed the museum? Well, as a, as a volunteer based here in Los Angeles, I've only actually visited the museum one time, but that one experience in Indianapolis, that one day visiting people like Chris Lafave, who's the curator there, and Julia Whitehead, who actually took me on a tour to Kurt's childhood home. She drove me to see his home because she saw I'm such a big fan. So that one day that I spent with them at the library um, really made an impact on me. So that's why I'm here volunteering. And I think, yes, Kurt's work was speaking to me quite a bit as I was reading it this year, mostly because so many of his quotes, like quotes from Man Without a, Without a Country, A Man Without a Country, uh, which is a collection of essays, so many quotes from that um, echo our times, you know? And, and I, I think, Folks who are reading Vonnegut right now will see a lot of parallels back to stuff that he was writing about in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and so it'll speak to speak to them and spoke to me. So that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here representing Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library. Even after only having visited one time, I'm working with my wife and my mother-in-law hosting this booth so that we can spread Kurt's message and make sure everyone knows that the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library is in Indianapolis. When they come visit, they have to stop by. And you said you're you're local here in Indiana, uh, in LA, and that you're a volunteer. What do you do f to to pay the bills? What do you do for for your job? So I am a staff member at the University of Southern California. I've been working at USC for a little over 17. I've been at USC for a little over 17 years, working professionally for about 12 years. And I knew that when I visited KVML, Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, back last October, that this may be the perfect way for me to get involved and really showcase what the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library has done to Angelinos. The website, uh, what can, you know, how can they support the, the museum and how can they, if they want to support? 
So now is a really great time to get involved because there's big changes happening with the museum as far as expanding it. So like I said, finding a new location to move into to expand our collections, a massive capital campaign to really encourage that. And part of that is actually getting more membership in the library. The library actually is a lending library. It has a replica of Kurt's uh, office in it and, and a bookshelf where you can actually you know pick up books and check them out. I'm a member. I'm here in L.A. We take membership uh, at the level of $50. So if you want to contribute $50 as a donation to the, uh, a nonprofit organization like Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, you can get involved and actually make an impact on expanding Kurt's reach and the reach of Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library to a generation of new readers and, and just fans who are really passionate about Kurt's work. The Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library in Indianapolis, Indiana uh, is open, I, think, I believe, six days a week. And um, you can reach them through the website at vonnegutlibrary.org. That's www.v-o-n-n-e-g-u-t library, L-I-B-R-A-R-Y.org. Uh, we have all of the information about the library itself, the outreach programs, some uh, traveling exhibits that you might see in towns that you visit, uh, and uh, a shop where you can get all kinds of great Kurt Vonnegut books and merchandise. I really encourage you, if you're a Vonnegut fan, to become a member of the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library. Uh, there's also, you can contribute at much higher levels, but for those of you who just want to get started and find out more, I think it's a great opportunity. Like I said, I'm a member, um, and it only took one visit for me to really sit, feel like I needed to put in a lot more time and energy into supporting the great work that the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library does. This being 10 years since Kurt's passing, that we keep Kurt's message of hope, humanity, and education um, in our hearts and also in our politics, you know, that we speak about these issues. And I think that's why um, Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library is so influential and so powerful and is involved in such great things like Banned Books Week. Um, so I want to just say that Kurt's work and rereading Kurt's work, if you haven't read Kurt in a little while, pick it up again. You know, start off with whatever maybe was your favorite or maybe one you haven't read before. and listen to how it'll speak to you in a different way than when you read it the first time. I think right now, if you read books like God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, or Jailbird, or even Slaughterhouse-Five, um, echoes of a different time are resonating very clearly right now in our present moment. What do you geek out about? Oh, I'm a big geek about a lot of stuff. So I'm a, a Rush geek, if you like the band Rush, uh, out of Canada, Toronto, Canada. Huge Rush fan. Um, huge Kurt Vonnegut fan, so I geek out about Kurt Vonnegut, obviously. Um, I'm also a pretty big geek when it comes to Stephen Sondheim musicals. <laughs> so uh, uh, there's, there's a few like interesting connections that I've built around them. They tend to be highly polarizing figures. People either really love Kurt Vonnegut or they just don't like Vonnegut at all. Same thing with Rush, same thing with Sondheim. I tend to be on the side of I'm really passionate about these figures that are very, very well, I say very polarizing, but can be polarizing to certain people. So they definitely had very clear viewpoints about what they were saying and what they were doing. So I, I, they, they speak to me. My name is Hanin Kalaf, and I'm here with XPRIZE Foundation, the Barbara Bush found, or the Adult Literacy XPRIZE. And tell me a little bit about, about that. Sure. So what we have done at XPRIZE is we've created an incubator, basically, of teams who are competing to create mobile applications for adult learners who test at or below a third grade level of reading. So currently we have 41 
teams competing in the running still. And next month we're announcing the top 15 mobile apps for adult learners. So with those 15, we're going to take those and actually test them in the field with 12,000 different adult learners from Los Angeles, Dallas, and Philadelphia. And that will be starting in July. And what we want is to get in contact with anyone and everyone that has access to an adult learner who tests at or below a third grade level of reading, is a native Spanish or English speaker, and has an Android. Anyone that is that person, we want, uh, we want to be able to provide you with a mobile app that can increase your literacy. And how does someone know what grade level they test at? So what we're actually doing is we're conducting a pretest to determine your level of reading. It's called the CASAS test. And what that does is determine what level of reading you are at. So the equivalent of the CASAS score is a 210. If they test at or below a 210, then they qualify. And we do that on our end. Awesome. And what are you doing here at the LA Festival of Books? What's, the, what's your point here? Yeah, so we wanted to connect with any community-based organizations, educators, any particip potential participants in this field test that are low-literate adults, anyone that's here that has access to that very niche population. And that's what we want. We want to have champions sign on to get this message out there. And if someone was interested in, in helping you, um, how would they get a hold of you? So you can text the word CHAMP, C-H-A-M-P, to 797979, or you can email info, I-N-F-O, dot adultliteracy at xprize.org, or you can go on our website, which is adultliteracy.xprize.org slash champion. What are you geeky about? And it doesn't have to be necessarily what we're talking about. It can be something else. I'm geeky about people coexisting with each other. Hi, my name is Michael Mullen. I run Gemini Press, an independent publisher. I'm the author-publisher. Uh, I've been here selling books for, this is my fifth year here. And tell me about the books you're selling. Uh, they're for the younger crowd, not too young. Uh, middle grade is the lowest, and then uh, some young adult stuff, so middle school, high school. And give me some titles so for people who may not know. Sure. Tailspins is the biggest seller. It's a three twisted fairy tales in one book uh, about the eighth dwarf that nobody knew about. Uh, his seven roommates name, nickname him Creepy and lock him in the basement uh, because he's so weird, which is not very nice. And a princess who hires a witch to get revenge on a mean girl at school. And an overnight urban odyssey, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk retelling. And we've done a graphic novel version of Creepy the Eighth Dwarf's story called Eight, the Untold Story. Awesome. And I'm a theater person, so I noticed there's also a modern-day Hamlet. Yes, that's my latest one. It came out uh, two years ago, 2015, and it is a modern-day retelling of Hamlet called Simon, and it follows the plot of Hamlet right along. Uh, in the modern day, there's a news media angle, a sensationalized news media angle. Spoiler alert, pretty much everyone dies. But uh, the, news, uh, the novel actually begins with the news media finding five dead bodies in a mansion in Massachusetts, and then we go back in time, and then we see how the story unfolds and how we got there. Okay, um, tell me a little bit about your, your origin story as a writer. What made you decide to start writing? Sure. Uh, I've been a copywriter for 20 years or so. I was at Disney for six or seven years uh, writing business stuff, and so I always had that sort of fiction bent on the side. And uh, I had a chance meeting with Tim Burton while I was at uh, Disney. I wrote two sequel stories to The Nightmare Before Christmas, not movie scripts, but uh, the 
picture book that they made the movie out of was written in rhymed verse. And uh, so I wrote two sequel stories that he approved. Disney never published them. It's just such a huge company, and it just never happened. But the Eighth Dwarf story, which is also written in verse, was actually the start of that. It was going to be my follow-up to those nightmare stories. And so once I wrote that, I sort of self-published it as a little 99-cent e-book and then went from there. Uh, and then when Disney never published those other ones, I was just sort of already down the track. And so I wrote two more. Did the, My first printed book was the Tailspins book and just kind of went from there with the whole indie publishing road. What about writing for, for, for children draws you versus an older generation? I have twins, boy-girl twins, who are now 15. So over the past 10 years or so, I've sort of been, you know, when I read Harry Potter's, all the books to them and that sort of thing, that's always been my connection. I was also a former teacher, preschool teacher, uh, and so I've always had a connection to the younger kids. And what I like to do is not talk down to them. That's sort of my hook, if there is one, uh, that I write things in the vocabulary maybe a little bit tougher than what they're used to, but, you know, I'm, I'm all for that. <laughs> if a kid has to ask what a word means, that's a good thing. <laughs> um, I, I interview with a lot of uh, authors, and I always ask, uh, because it's different for everybody, uh, characters first or plot first for you, typically? Uh, for me, it's character first, and I think that has a lot to do with my working at Disney. I was in the licensed merchandise division, and so it's always sort of character first there. Not that Disney doesn't do story as well, but I always think of who is this character, and then what happens. And then are you a, uh, what uh, George R. R. Martin calls a gardener, or are you what Nancy Kress calls a pantser? In other words, do you plan, or do you write by the seat of your pants? Uh, up as you go. I'm a, I'm a little in between, but if I had to lean one way, I would say planner. <laughs> I sort of know structure, especially when you're doing retellings. Like obviously the structure is already there for you, so that's almost like a cheat, you know. Um, but yeah, I do tend to plot out the stories and what happens. And then part of the joy of it is to see how, when you get going, how it it may go a different way, you know. And that's that's never a bad thing because it means you're thinking about it and making things happen for these characters that you didn't think of back in the planning stages. What's the hardest part about writing for you? Um, I think just the the day-to-day, -day, the getting, you know, it's you have a new idea, and I, I'm not the best at the, you know, everybody says you, you sit down and you put your blinders on and you write 20 pages a day. Like, I don't do that, so I'm a procrastinator, I guess. <laughs> Me and everybody, I know there's an exclusive club, right? <laughs> uh, that would be the hardest part, though, is sticking to it and with the other stuff that goes on in life and stuff like that. When you're at this stage and you're promoting yourself and you have to, you know, and I still do the copywriting on the side too and so it's it's that sort of balancing act is the hardest part I think for sure and the easiest part uh, getting from new idea to early planning stages that's the easiest and the most fun I have a like a backlog of story ideas and stuff like that and so when you're in that really early stage when you're just kicking around the lump of play uh, that going from sort of a stage one to stage two is the easiest part for me and the most fun. Okay, and where would people go to find out more about you and your books? Uh, my new site is michaelmullenauthor.com, so it's M-U-L-L-I-N is my last name, michaelmullenauthor.com, and then uh, from there, there's Amazon links and everything directly to all of the books. There's four out right now. And uh, the name of my podcast is called Geek Out. The theme is everyone's geeky about something, so I've, I've asked everybody I interview now, um, what are you geeky about and why? <laughs> I'm a little geeky about Batman, and I'm geeky about Hamlet as well. <laughs> um, I, Hamlet, the story's always just kind of 
been drawn to me. I taught preschool, but I also taught college freshmen, and uh, I taught a hero class where we read Hamlet, and that's kind of where I solidified the geekiness on that. And the Batman has just always been something that I'm. <laughs> well, there's a little bit of Hamlet in him. Yes, I think. Yeah, I think that there is a there is a connection between those two. And uh, yeah, I, like I said, I'm a theater nerd and a Shakespeare nerd. Do you have a favorite production of Hamlet? Uh, I actually, we just saw, I took my daughter, we saw the movie version of the play at UCLA, the Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, and it was great. It was really cool. I like the way the whole story and everything, sort of the modern takes of it, they find like the dark humor in it, which obviously back in the day, they didn't necessarily uh, focus on that. I think when it was first produced, they absolutely did, uh, but then they went through a whole sort of sanitized, everything was so serious, and the Kenneth Branagh days and stuff like that, which I like those two, and, you know, those, um, but then there's been a return to uh, recognizing uh, the dark humor of his situation. Hi, uh, my name is Christian Nee, and I'm with uh, Anomaly Productions. And what do they do? Uh, Anomaly Productions creates uh, augmented reality comic books and graphic novels. And for those who may not know, explain what augmented reality is and why uh, it would work in a comic book. Uh, augmented reality is essentially you download an app and point your phone or tablet at uh, the page and something will pop out on the screen. But essentially, uh, you can see exactly what the artist wanted to show you in 3D and you can go around and you could look around the uh, model itself and you can interact with it. If you poke the screen, something else, uh, something will happen. Uh, and on top of that, our app also includes over 100 pages of extra backstory, which can uh, help enhance the story. So it, the app essentially acts as an encyclopedia, uh, so you can read about exactly what you're looking at. And um, what kind of technology do you need to be able to access this? Uh, so our uh, software is ran through, uh, it's developed in Unity, and then it's uh, powered through uh, Vuforia. All they need is the app? Uh, yeah, um, all they need is the app. The app itself is free. Uh, we're selling the books, though. And how much are the books? Uh, so Anomaly, our giant book, is uh, $50. Uh, it has 60 pages of uh, augmented reality. And it's actually the longest full-color graphic novel ever done. It has 360 pages, I believe, fully colored. Uh, Faster Than Light, our monthly comic book. Uh, it's, uh, there are 10 issues out right now, and we have two trades, each including five issues. And both of them have about 25 pages of augmented reality. Faster Than Light 1 is $10, and Faster Than Light 2 is $15. Uh, and there's over 100 pages of uh, actual story in there. Um, and then Shifter, our um, other book, it's a, it's, it's a traditional graphic novel. Um, it's uh, $20 uh, with another 20 pages of augmented reality. And then we have a young adult novel named Between Worlds uh, that also has uh, the same kind of augmented reality capabilities as well. And that is $15. Awesome. And what do you specifically do? Uh, I am uh, Brian Haberlin's assistant, and I do some of the art for him as well. Okay, well, um, drawing art for, for something that would go into augmented reality, is the process any different than drawing art normally? Uh, no, no, it's, it's essentially uh, just working and modeling in 3D. Um, what would you say is the hardest part of working in augmented reality? Um, making it look good. Uh, there's, you know, it, there's, they look different on the page than they are going to look in real life or on, in augmented reality. So you really have to uh, mess around with all of the augmented reality until it looks perfect. And why should, if someone ha doesn't read comics, why should they read your comics? Um, because it's, uh, you know, augmented reality, I believe, adds an entirely different layer to the experience of graphic novels. Um, you know, it, it really um, makes it immersive. You know, you get to really see what, you know, is actually happening in the story in the context of the story. It's, it's really 
fantastic to be able to see everything the way the artist exactly meant you to see it. Um, and I believe uh, the stories themselves are actually very immersive and very engaging uh, to the point where even if they didn't have the augmented reality, I would still pick them up and read them. If they want to learn more, how do they find you? Uh, so we have a, a website. Our company is called Anomaly, and our website is called uh, experienceanomaly.com. And we also have Instagram and Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, all pretty much all the social media sites to contact us through. Uh, what do you geek out? And it doesn't have to necessarily be about this. It can be something else. Uh, I'm a giant fan of graphic novels. Uh, obviously, I love I love the stuff we make, but I'm also a giant fan of video games uh, and movies. And uh, I'm a big fan of Hearthstone as well. I, I love Hearthstone. And what about those uh, draws you? Why why does it, why are you geeky about them? Uh, because they uh, they, they really uh, relate to me on an emotional level. I, I really they, they really are great stories, and they're they're really uh, engaging and make me think about about what uh, what I'm doing. You can see a video of how the augmented reality comics of Anomaly Productions work on my website. I am Nancy Kress, and I very much enjoyed being on Angie Fiedler Sutton's podcast. She does a wonderful job, and you should listen. You can find Contents May Vary, the home of the Geek Out podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash contentsmayvary. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr, all at the handle Angie F. Sutton. Finally, the site now has a newsletter. Be sure to sign up for it over at my website, angiefsutton.com. And now, back to my interviews from this year's LA Times Festival of Books. I'm Emily Berkman, and I'm here with the Jane Austen Society of North America. And tell me a little bit about the society. What does it do? So our local group, which is who I'm representing, does three programs a year. The next one actually is in a month in Pasadena called Jane Austen to Downton Abbey. So how much changed and actually didn't change in the hundred years between the two. And uh, we have reading groups all around the city. And some people belong to four and I belong to none because there's something for everyone in the Jane Austen Society. And then the whole national group has a meeting every year called the Annual General Meeting. And this year actually that AGM meeting is here in Southern California in Huntington Beach in October. Awesome. What about Jane Austen uh, do you find fascinating? Why are you part of the society? Um, it's her writing. It's her wit. It's her social commentary. And it doesn't matter how many times I read it, I always get something else out of it. And do you have a favorite of her books? It's always a tie for me between Pride and Prejudice and Persuasion. And what about them specifically do you like? The writing. The characters. Do you have a favorite character? Lizzie Bennet. Now, um, Jane Austen, you know, has kind of gotten a, a refresh in the last 10 years. There was uh, the, the one book about the, the Jane Austen book club. Um, and then, of course, there was yet another remake. There was Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which was the, the humorous take on it. Um, why do you think there's been this upsurge lately? Well, I think she's just timeless. I think the stories are timeless. And um, there's actually a video blog uh, called the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, where it's basically the story in the 21st century, and it's just as interesting now as it was then. And one of the authors, Kate Rorick, uh, turned it into a book that I just couldn't put down. And uh, she was here signing uh, her, the book uh, the last couple of years, and we had teenagers who knew it and came up and were just so thrilled to meet her. So everybody finds something in Jane. And um, 
she's also been getting a lot of, of commentary lately uh, for being an early feminist icon. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, she was the woman writer before there were all the other women writers. So she actually started writing in the late 18th century. And then in the 19th century, you get the Brontes and Mary Shelley and George Eliot. Um, but she was the first. And um, how would someone uh, find out more about you guys? Uh, they can go to our website, www.jasnasw.com. And that is J-A-S-N-A-S-W.com. And is it free to join? Is there a membership fee? Uh, there is no local membership fee. And uh, why should someone join? Um, I, like I said, I think there's something for everyone. So the programs are very interesting. And you, someone said, what else do you have to talk about? Well, there's always something. There's another way to see it. And often our talks are less about the novels, but more about the Regency time, so we understand them better. Um, and uh, then there's reading groups that gather and discuss them. And the name of my podcast is called Geek Out. Um, obviously, you're very geeky about Jane Austen. What else are you geeky about and why? Well, I'm a librarian, so I'm pretty geeky about anything having to do with books. Tell me a little bit more about what you specifically do at the library. Well, I work at a community college library, and I truly feel that I change people's lives. So they come to the reference desk, and they're looking for a book, and they absolutely don't even know how to look for a book. And when they find something they want, they don't know how to go to the shelves and find it, and they don't understand call numbers. And they come, and they want... I, I had someone ask me, I need a book about pregnancy for my psychology class. And I said, well, you need to be more narrow. No, 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 that's all I need. So we put it in, and sure enough, she probably got two million hits. And so I feel like I'm helping them through the research learn how to focus their thesis statement, because once they realize how much literature is out there, they need to be more focused. Now, why do libraries still matter in the world of the internet? Well, I think it's Neil Gaiman. Somebody said, it, the internet will bring you two million results, but the librarian will find you the right one. Awesome. Anything else you wanted to talk about? So I wanted to say something else about what Jane Austen does. And my sister is a therapist. As you know, I'm a librarian. And um, we're actually going to be giving a talk at the next AGM meeting. Uh, Jane Austen as bibliotherapy. Because she had someone come to her. One of her patients said, I want my Mr. Darcy. And she said, okay, if you want your Mr. Darcy, then you need to be more like Lizzie Bennet, and was able to use the character as a way to find herself and be more of her own person and be a more appealing person and a less needy person. Because the thing about Lizzie Bennet is that she's strong and she knows what she wants and she will say no when she doesn't want to do it. Thanks to Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, it was a perfect transition from talking to Emily to my next interview. Hi, I'm John Palisano, and I'm here with the Horror Writers Association, or the HWA. And what do they do? The HWA is a support system and a writer's organization, kind of like the Writers Guild, for horror writers. We offer a mentorship program. We offer promotional opportunities for our writers. We offer our newsletter, forums, market listings, and of opportunities to appear at events such as the LA Times Festival of Books. And why should someone uh, become a member? If you are at any stage in your writing career, we offer support for you. If you're a new writer, we offer all kinds of mentorship pro uh, programs, um, critique groups, 
um, lots of support at that level. We have a lot of local chapters. If you are somebody who's at the middle of your career and you're established, we offer a lot of other opportunities for you as well. Appearing at an event such as the LA Times Festival of Books gives you a lot of exposure you wouldn't have to pay for yourself. You can come in for the two hours, have a signing slot with us, and feel free to enjoy the festival and not have to incur the cost of running your own booth. We also have a lot of legal consultations and a lot of, we have lawyers on staff that we help writers who are in that um, position. We have agents that consult with us all the time for authors. So we have a lot to offer for, for writers at every different level. Now, horror has, has always been a, a bit of a niche uh, and, a, you know, almost a cult thing. But the last, you know, five, ten years, there's really been a breakout, um, and it's kind of become more mainstream. Why, in your opinion, do you think that's happening? I think that horror reflects its times in a beautiful way. And I think we're living in some very scary times. And one of the things that comes to mind immediately is that we don't know where our enemy is anymore. It can come from anywhere. With terrorism, with the rise of terrorism and all the fringe groups, it's a very scary place. And horror is reflecting that. And it gives people an outlet. It gives people a way to put into context what's happening in the world. And I think we have such, such scary times that people are drawn to horror. One of the reasons I believe something like Walking Dead is taken off so well is because we don't know where the horror is going to be coming from in real life. Zombies in Walking Dead are very much like that. It's a very open story. Zombies traditionally were closed. They were in a shopping mall and zombies are closing in. Now they could pop out of a tree in the middle of a very you know, beautiful, normal environment. And I think that's kind of reflective of the way people are feeling and what they're scared now because a bomb can go off anywhere. You can go to McDonald's and a bomb can go off. And people are afraid of that. And I think that's why people are really embracing horror again. Now, I see that there's flyers for, for StokerCon and, and for, is that something that you guys put on or are you just promoting it? Yeah, we, we've put on StokerCon. This is our third year. We're going into our third year. We partnered with World Horror for, for many years, and Rocky Wood was our president for several years. He passed away. It was his dream to have the Bram Stoker Awards have their own convention. So we've been fulfilling his dream, and it's going very well. And it is something that we've been putting on by ourselves, and we're doing it by coastal We do one year we do East Coast, and then one year we do West Coast. We try and we definitely are getting some top-notch guests and some really great feedback. And the nice thing about the, the convention is we wanted to gear this to a lot more than just going and hearing experts speak. So we have Horror University, which is a series of classes people can pay for separately. And they're all, each one is marketed to, you know, marketing or some specific topic. We also are working with an academic group for the first time. We're going to have a sister program going on at the same time called the Ann Radcliffe um, uh, event, which is going to really be for librarians. And it's just going to be an amazing thing. So we're, we're really helping with academics. We're helping with schools. We're, we have a, a library day where librarians are going to come with us for the first time, and they have a whole day of programming geared just towards librarians. So. Now, what would be your one tip for someone wanting to become a horror writer? Read a lot. If you want to become a writer, no matter what you want to write, you have to read a lot. And then you have to write a lot. And then you have to read a lot more again. And then you have to rewrite what you wrote. And that's it. That's a simple success uh, recipe, if you ask me. There's not a shortcut. One thing about writing is it's very similar to working out or being an athlete. You have to do the work. 
If you don't do the work, you can't fake it. Nobody can work out for you. Writing is working out in your brain. If you don't do it, it's not. It's going to show. So you have to do it. Okay. And where, if somebody's wanting to know more information, where can they find you? Horror.org. H-O-R-R-O-R.org. Has all of the above. <laughs> and are you on social media? Yes. We. If you, if you Google Horror Writers Association, we're all over Facebook. We also have local chapters all over the country and the world. So we're worldwide. We have UK, Australia, Canada, and I think even uh, we we're going into some of the Asian countries now. Some of the English speakers are starting chapters. So horror.org will also link you to all the Facebook accounts and Twitter accounts that we have as well. Awesome. And is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we haven't? Please, please write more and read more. And make sure you read to kids uh, because we have a, a whole lot of young kids that are coming up to us and loving to read horror and the kids are attracted to the dark stuff let them read whatever they need to read uh, it's it's a it's a wonderful gift so. uh, obviously you're geeky about horror but is there anything else that you're geeky about and if so what I, I well personally I'm really into music uh, I play in bands so I really like I'm into like guitars and things like that as well do the two crossover do you, uh, you know like music that's specifically horror related well, you know, honestly, there's not a lot. I mean, I'm not really into like the, the horror like bands, but I think there's there's such a similarity to playing music to writing books um, because, you know, writing is rhythm, rhythm is music and vice versa. And the same effort that goes into writing a song goes into writing a poem. If you're good at poems, you're good at writing books. It all works together. Hi, we're the Super Amazing Princess Heroes. My name is Sanjay Nambiar. I'm the author and creator, and I'm here with my co-founders, Sorb Kakani and Mega Kakakia. And we have a children's property series. There are children's books, we have puzzles and pencil cases. It's all about girl empowerment, about diversity, and they're regular girls who transform into princesses with superpowers. In the first book, they save the prince. And um, how many books are in the series? There are two. The first one came out in 2013. And the second one came out at the end of last year. And they're both award-winning books. Really excited about the second one. It's about a heart hospital in Uganda that was built by the World Children's Initiative. They contacted us. We did a special project, created a book about it, and we're sharing proceeds from the book with that nonprofit. And it's based on a real-life character, a real-life girl named Gift, who was the first patient. And she inspired our character, whose name is also Gift. And tell me a little bit about the origin of the, the first book. What made you decide to write something like this? You know, I have two daughters. They're 10 years old now. And when they were younger, you know, there weren't a lot of positive role models for them in literature. Their role models were princesses who would fall asleep and need to be kissed by a boy to wake up. Or they'd lose a shoe at a ball. And I'm raising smart, independent girls. There's a big disconnect. At the same time, my girls loved wearing the princess outfits. And they loved like putting on the, the gowns and tiaras and having that kind of like role in fantasy play. So the whole idea is like, you know what? Go ahead and put on the gown. But when you do... Don't be a damsel in distress. Don't wait to be saved. Go and do the saving. Put on the gown and save the prince. Put on the gown and have superpowers. Be amazing. And that was the combination of the two, and that was the inspiration behind it. Awesome. What would you say is what has been the hardest part of this process? You know, it's getting the word out. And the thing is, when people look at the Super Amazing Princess Heroes, the feedback has always been phenomenal. Whether we're at a library, at a festival like this, or we're reading at schools, or it's reviews online, it's things. It, it, it's a property, and these are stories that people wanted for decades. And they, see, they say they wish they had this when they were young. It's exactly what they're looking for, for their boys and for their girls. They love it. But you know, with any small brand, it's getting into a mass market. That's always been the biggest challenge. So we have something special. We just got to get the word out more. 
Okay. And you said it's for boys as well. Tell me a little bit more about why a boy would want to read this. You know, it's an amazing way to have boys understand that girls can be just as powerful as boys. Because unfortunately in our culture, when, when little boys see images of women, it's always on a billboard or in front of a magazine. And it's always about the way they look. And it projects a certain kind of passivity. And that's, you know, it, it gets ingrained. It's very subconscious. Boys look at women. It's like, oh, you're supposed to look a certain way. And you're supposed to do certain things. Whereas when they look at men, they're seeing men as CEOs or as leaders or as superpowers or as superheroes. So they say men should be this way. Women should be this way. That starts when you're two, three, four years old. So when boys read a book like this, they say, wait a second. Girls can be superheroes and princesses. Girls can save the prince. And I can work with girls. We can collaborate. Those messages, when you start earlier, are very, very powerful. And I think it creates a more inclusive, more collaborative, and more powerful society. Awesome. Our website is phenomenal. We have over 17 princess heroes. They're from all over the world, from the U.S., from South America, from Australia, Asia, Europe, Africa. On the website, we have profiles of each one. You can watch them transform. You learn about their specific powers. You learn about their personalities. We also have tons of resources for parents. We have profiles of real women throughout history who've had an impact on culture and the arts and science. And so it's not just about fiction, but it's about you know real-life women who are amazing role models. And we have essays on parenting and on bullying and other resources. So the website's just a, a wonderful place not to get not just to get entertained and have fun, but also to learn a lot. Um, tell me why specifically you're focusing on diversity. But it's, you know, I think, one, there's a lack of it in literature and in media. I mean, I'm South Asian. My kids are South Asian. When I look around, we have such a diverse culture, and kids need to see themselves in the books that they read. And it's amazing when a, a little kid, if she's a girl or a boy of color, or who's perhaps a little bit different, one of our um, princess heroes is in a wheelchair. If you're a little bit different and you don't see yourself, you always feel like you're an outsider. But if you could read a book with a character that looks like you, that reminds you of yourself, and all of a sudden you realize you could be that character. It's incredibly empowering and we need more diversity in television and film and books and art everywhere for those reasons. Awesome. And if someone wanted to learn more about you and your books, how where would they go? It's www.superprincessheroes.com. We're on all social media at, at Princess Heroes, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And actually you can find us in libraries and bookstores across the country as well. Awesome. And what are you geeky about? And it doesn't necessarily have to be about what we've been talking about. And why? Well, I'm a huge geek about many, many, many things, but probably music more than anything else. I listen to all kinds of music from like really indie rock to jazz. So if anyone wants to geek out about music, I could talk for hours. Why? Because it's, it's always been one of my biggest passions. Do you have a specific favorite genre or is it you're eclectic? You know, I'm very eclectic. I DJ as well. So I've spinned everything from, you know, electronica and house to lounge music. I can do a, a jazz post-bop set. One of my biggest heroes is Miles Davis. I listen to everything from that to you know, bands like TV Corporation and Mark Frina to indie rock bands, Yola Tango, so all over the board. Where do you go to find new music? Uh, KCRW is a great source. Um, you know, I went to Berkeley undergrads. So I used to go to Amoeba Records. You know, everything's digital now, but Amoeba is always a great place to find new music. And you know, just talking to other people who are music heads. And with that interview, that's a wrap for this year's LA Times Festival of Books. A reminder that more information on all of the people I interviewed will be on my website, as well as photos and videos from the festival. My thanks go out to each of the people I interviewed, as well as the LA Times and USC for hosting such a great event every year. Thanks also to science fiction author Nancy Kress for her plug. My interview with her will be on the next episode. Until next time, stay geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Pitnikin, available via the Free Music Archive. 
This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License. More information about the podcast is available on AngieFSutton.com.